have taken your first step into a larger world. Let's go. Hello there. I'm Rowan Williams. I'm Baz McAllister. And welcome to Force Material, where this week we're breaking down Chapter 14 of The Mandalorian, The Tragedy. Baz, we've been lucky enough to have some really great guests join us for our Mandalorian recaps, but this week we might have the most overqualified guest to ever appear on a Mandalorian recap show. Roger Christian won the Oscar for Best Art Direction for his work on the original Star Wars. He's the man who built Luke Skywalker's lightsaber and Han Solo's blaster. He gave Chewbacca his bowcaster and the Stormtroopers their blasters. He decorated the cantina and built the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. He's the man who turned blue milk blue. More than anyone outside George Lucas himself, he's the man responsible for the grimy, used future aesthetic of Star Wars that The Mandalorian has tried so hard to recapture. Roger, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Now, Roger, The Mandalorian is a show that goes to great lengths, as we said, to sort of capture that the look and feel of the original trilogy. Do you think they've succeeded? Oh, more than succeeded. I, I think, you know, when, when I think back, there weren't any toys at Christmas when it first launched. And I thought, oh, this is kind of familiar to the first Star Wars going out where no one really knew if it would work. And... <laughs> It, I think it proves my point that the fans are driving the ship now. Mm. And um, the fans have found it. And after all the sequels, they've recognized here's the Star Wars that they loved. And, um, you know, when I go back, that was my first ever conversation with George in Mexico when we met. I'm trying to make a spaghetti western in space. Mm. And um, John... John <laughs> really um with with dave have given us the western that kind of i imagined actually the world would be and it's clint eastwood it's spaghetti westerns which i loved and and if you go back in time and you're you're watching the mandalorian there's the spaghetti westerns all over it and he's clint eastwood there's no question it's like developed character but the lone and where did that all come from kurosawa and the Lone Samurai movies, which influenced everything. And in fact, Kurosawa was influenced by the early Westerns of John Ford. <laughs> so mm. it's all come full circle, which is, I think is fantastic. And, and you know, it's, I'm riveted to this show. I'm just loving it. It's almost like I'm there making it. <laughs> It, well, the the art of the Mandalorian book actually does uh, shout you out at one point for for, for providing some uh, some clear. Well, actually, are you, are you able to sort of elaborate on maybe you know what you provided the show to help them achieve that authenticity with regards to the cantina set? Well, the cantina obviously is a standout, and um, the the I'm, I'm you, you were talking about because I'm doing this documentary of my work on Star Wars at the moment, and and the cantina exterior is a standout. Now, I've got footage that David West Reynolds, who became the head of literature at, at Lucasfilm, 
he went and filmed in 95 all of our locations. He went and found them all because no one knew where they were. And I got all of his original footage and David and I are discussing each one of them. And uh, the exterior of the cantina really sums up Western look, but it's different. It's got a kind of science fiction quality to it, but it's ancient and mm. huge. Mm. And um, that kind of... You know, I recognize from there, like the Jewback, which is now because it's CGI. We didn't have CGI. There was a, a John Barry designed the Jewback and was so embarrassed by it. All it did was nod its head. <laughs> but in truth, when um, when we when I put it outside, because I, I made a Western hitching post outside the cantina, exactly, uh, I put a post and, and I put one of the uh, pods they crashed into the desert and I put that there, another vehicle, and I put the jute back. I tried to line it out like a Western. And the guy who owned the old cantina, this old Tunisian, came out, saw it, ran into the house, came out with a huge stick and started whacking it. And uh, the dust was flying. Of course, its head nodded more. He thought it was real. He spent so long hitting it. <laughs> I, was, I was behind the scenes crying with laughter with Les Dilly. And then he ran in. He never came out ever without the stick, just glaring at it. He, he just couldn't understand. <laughs> I thought, well, that's real. But that kind of atmosphere <laughs> is there in The Mandalorian, especially um, the first of the season two episodes where it's set back on Tatooine. And there is the dusty Western village. There's the gunfighter. There's the lone sheriff. And there's even a shootout about to happen. Mm. I'm animating a shootout myself, like a Western in space, but with with um, the guy in a, in a thin spacesuit doing it to show that that's how I imagined it, a Western shootout. We didn't quite get it in series two because the the crate dragon crane. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Having a shootout, which I was really looking forward to. <laughs> Are there any other sets in particular that have really kind of impressed you over the course of the series so far? Yeah, sure. There's, there's. I think it's in, in the first series, either the second or third, there's a bar that he goes into. Mm -hmm. That's actually the original bar design that Ralph McQuarrie did that we didn't use. I recognised all the arches and everything. Mm -hmm. And um, the crate Dragon itself was... You know, we we I I I didn't have any money, but I found that huge dinosaur bones in the prop room in Elstree, and I, I they were going to throw it out, bin it. You know, I couldn't afford to make any, and John Barry had sketched some in in a sketch, and so they were going to be thrown out. So I took them, grabbed them, and we took them out, and laid them in the desert. So that's the crate. Obviously, that was developed into the crate dragon now in Mandalorian. And more than that, if you, when the Tuscan Raiders try to wake up the crate in the cave, they give a cry. Well, if you go back to A New Hope in, in the valley where Obi Wan Kenobi first meets Luke and R2D2, you can hear there's a cry that's the crate dragon cry. So that I noticed when I was watching it. Mm. Um, and there's, I mean, everything, the ships and the way things are, the guns, the weapons, the Tuscan Raiders have that same Totokia yes. uh, mm. weapon that, again, I found for them 
and I stuck a mace in the end because I wanted to make it look a bit different because I only had one of them they had in the in the uh, gun hire place that I rented it from. So that's come back. And the Tuscan Raiders weapons that I was using, all sorts of odd rifles and long shot things that I could rent, and we only had one of, they're all back in Mandalorian. <laughs> all of <laughs> yeah. them. The Sandcrawler, I mean, the Sandcrawler was just like what we had made, you know, and, and in the first one, you could only go so far. Now they've really made it look cool and, and what it should be. Mm. That's um, it's just endless. Everything I'm looking at, I think, wow, it's our film again. And it's, it, I think it's what the fans loved. Mm. I'm, I'm finding a, a certain poetry in the fact that, you know, the Totokia War Club is a Fijian um, yes. weapon. And, and now we've got... Uh, a Maori person, like from the south, same South Pacific area, using that to great effect it's, um, it's in the Mandalorian, which is just—it's a lovely full circle thing. Yeah, the yeah. full circle is everywhere. I think yeah. there's a there's a force here, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, destiny that is striking every every minute. Yeah, it's so funny though to hear you talk about you know like just finding the dinosaur bones and then finding a, a use for them and and just you know essentially you know, these things that you've, you know, scrap metal, like you, last time we were on the show, you talked about, you know, all the, the, the aircraft parts you found, et cetera. And, you know, that, that you would sort of find just lying around and then throw into, you know, a scene and find a purpose for. And now those objects that were, that were scrap, that were, you know, someone else's rubbish, uh, are these sort of sacred objects that now, you know, the people making this show are going to such great lengths to, to recreate in in detail. I mean, is it strange for you to see stuff that you just found, you know, lying around now treated with such reverence? I think it's, you know, I had, I, I just did an interview with Guillermo del Toro um, about this kind of what happened. And he was a kid. He went, saw it and couldn't believe anyone could make a film like this and look so real and how it was. And he went around the block four times and, and kept going back to see it. And I think it, it was partially, we were talking about, it, it was partially because I didn't have any money and I couldn't make anything, but it was also my dream from childhood of how to, how science fiction should be real, should mm. be old and dirty and gritty. And um, here was a chance to finally do it. And the the only way I could think of, because I, I looked at old submarine interiors and I looked at bombers and things like that, and the only way I could think of doing it was scrap metal. And when you think at the time, I'm like this long-haired, young <laughs> kind of <laughs> set decorator who George didn't, he knew us, and we spent four months together. But during that four months, I'm driving a Mustang and going in to see him and saying, I've got this idea, if I go and buy some aircraft scrap, I could make the sets out of it. Now, any other single Hollywood director would have said, there's the door. And um, <laughs> I think because George was an independent filmmaker and he made THX, he understood that this was kind of, well, you just got to do it. And uh, so that whole process was very scary for me doing it because here I am doing stuff that there's no reference. There was nothing before it. I didn't know it was going to work. And as I piled in scrap into the sets, like the Millennium Falcon hold, I didn't know it was going to work. And quite honestly, it looked terrible <laughs> until I got it really crammed with 
everything filled, the whole walls were covered and we aged it a bit and dripped oil on it. Suddenly it looked just incredible. It looked like, wow, we got a ship from somewhere. And I, I think they've brought that back. You know, when I, I, I look at, uh, George got a little bit shinier as he went on into the prequels, but the first one was very like, he felt this was something that you recognize that people were, were using and how they would be, especially the way, you know, even Luke says it's a pile of junk. Well, the, Melandu, the Man Mandalorian ship is pretty much similar. Yeah, it's definitely a pile of junk. You know, we see it red. Yeah. What, uh, what, do you what do you make of the fact that they've put a toilet in the razor crest, I don't know if you spotted that, but is that a bit too real? Is that a bit too lived in? I don't think so. I think that's one of the questions, you know, that we yeah. have to show on a movie when you're writing it, you don't always got to go to the toilet, come back. You never show that, but um, the way they did it, I think, and it, it is a it, it there's there's a little bit of humor that George added into the a new hope. And that when he says, you know, if you've got to use the washer, you better go now. It's going to be a long journey. Then it, it's got a little bit of humour to it, but it's also it's also helps to connect to an audience. I think, mm. Mm. I think those things work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now this episode in particular opens with some sort of father and son time with uh, with Mando and and Grogu, baby Yoda, and. We, we really get a sense of, of how much it hurts Mando that he's going to have to part with Grogu so, you know, so the baby can continue his training. I mean, Baz, you know, you, you're, you're a father to a young child. That, that opening scene, did that, was, that, was that hitting you in the heartstrings? I can't see how they can ever split up now. I, no, I don't think they can. <laughs> yeah. find a way around it because uh, they've become such an iconic... You know, and that also hangs back to Westerns where there was the lone kind of um, gunman and then the boy. They, they often had boys come in, so did Kurosawa. So that relationship is very, um, it's very powerful. Mm. Yeah, and having a seven, seven this weekend, it, it, you know, in every parent, we, we, he's very devoted to me, my boy. And you think about this, it's like a horror that you're going to separate or anything, even getting older. There's a time when they go through their problems. But I have a 36-year-old son as well, and we're best friends. Um, we still are. And he moved here to Toronto as well because I'm here and he's married now and has his own life. But he calls me every day. And I, I think what's what hits home with the Mandalorian because he he doesn't have a face. He he is a loner, and the fact that there's a connection building so naturally that it tugs the heartstrings strings for sure. Mm. Um, there's there's a moment in the previous episode where there's nothing said. They're looking at each other. There's a there's kind of a you can see there the power of a relationship over this young, young saying, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to train him. And he wants the best for him, you know, but also in that silence, I could see there that he doesn't want to let go of him. Mm. Yeah. It's unbelievable. They've managed to, to create a bond like that between a puppet and a faceless person Yeah, over the course <laughs> of these 
14 episodes it's you know to the point where now you, you you're genuinely filled with anxiety about the fact that they might have to split up mm. i agree but and also when you, you that goes back to a new hope because no one ever put in a, a hairy large creature next to the leading one of the leading actors and and got away with it and formed a friendship you know so again it it, it all harks back yeah yeah Speaking of things that hark back and and uh, and Grogu, did you see uh, Grogu's blue macarons a few episodes ago? Were inspired by yes. your uh, your blue milk? Yeah, and and in the Western bar on the first episode in uh, yeah two, then he pours him a drink and it's blue. <laughs> so who would have known? You know, and I was talking about that because trying to get that to work was nightmare for me. I just couldn't get anything to turn blue that looked like milk. You think, oh, we'll just put blueberries in the milk. It curdles. It wouldn't ever stick. It was a nightmare. And I left my prop boys because when they did that day of the shooting, I had to run to Gerba to get the next set ready. So I know it tasted horrible when Mark tasted it. So I don't know. Maybe we use camel milk. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, and then I saw this coming in, in uh, the galaxy's edge, and I thought, wow, you know, the dice – Mm. Dice that I just added out of out of a, a, a recognition that uh, it would help to establish um, Han as a as a gambler mm. and a, and a kind of that kind of character and also bring luck to George because he had them in in American Graffiti in the car and uh, look they've become a major plot point they they were never described it was just there and they were taken out they're only in one scene I think in in A New Hope. Mm. Um, so those things become icons and the same as blue milk. I mean, it was just a blue milk. It was described in the script and I got it to work. Now it's, it's come back as like hugely recognized everywhere. Exactly. At the, at the start of this episode, uh, I, I was shocked how quickly they got to uh, Tython. Like, I, I mean, for me, in the previous episode, when Ahsoka said, you need to go to Tython, I'm thinking, because of the nature of the show, they do love a quest. They love a, they love a side yeah. quest. They love a, you know, oh, i, I got to help this person over here, so they'll help me with the thing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was thinking it would be at least two or three episodes before they got to the top of this mountain. But they get there immediately. Baz, did you, did you, were you thinking it would take longer to get there? I thought it would take the next two episodes to get there because um, Tython's mentioned in the Dr. Aphra comics. Mm. Um, and and it's um, described as being in the deep core. And I know that the Mandalorian's on the outer rim, so I thought he'd have to take an epic journey to get there. But maybe they've just recited Tython as somewhere fairly close to where he is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe. Yeah. 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 And, and, and they have had quite a lot of cockpit stuff with Baby Yoda. Things like that. So maybe they thought, you know what, we've got enough traveling. Let's yeah. get off. <laughs> <I think. laughs> now, the, the setup on Tython, uh, it's a bit Stonehenge. You know, you've got this rock formation uh, in a sort of a circle around uh, this, this sort of big, uh, as, as the Mando calls it, magic rock in, in the middle. I mean, Roger, you're a man who knows a bit about, you know, European mythology. What do you what do you think the, you know, the significance of, of, of those types of rock formations is? It it again goes back to the origins, you know. I'm um, I'm explaining in the documentary about the lightsaber, which is obviously a big thing. 
And in that, I've got an animated sequence of Excalibur rising out of the water and um, how that relates itself to the, the underpinnings of mythology and where it all came from, because the lightsaber came from Excalibur. That's, you know, we as kids, we were all King Arthur. With, mm -hmm. Now everybody's Luke Skywalker. <laughs> with it changed. But I think those kind of things add to the mythology. I think that's what, it, it, they, they probably aren't recognized by an audience, especially in America, but they're there in the subconscious. And I, I think that's where George was so clever. You know, George embedded those things deep into the um, underbelly of um, Star Wars. So that I think there are essential elements that connect to us deep inside our subconscious, which is where it matters because you, you watch movies and they just glide on the surface and they're all full of action, especially science fiction. And you love it and you get things, you know, exhilarated and then it finishes and you wait for the next one. But Mandalorian, the same as, as Star Wars, the original Star Wars, the first one, they really get under your skin. You, you never forget these stuff. And I think that's what makes it so different. And those kind of images are essential to create a landscape that is a reality that would be a mythology. Yeah, it's interesting that we're seeing these structures like this one and then, you know, Akto in The Last Jedi that are very Earth-like, that look like, you know, you would imagine like ancient ruins, ancient temples would look like on Earth. So, again, it's like it's tapping into that real-world mythology and that real-world sort of shared history, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, Von Daniken is, is always explaining, like, the pyramids, where, how did they all erupt? They must have come from a visitor from outer space who came because they're all the same in Peru and Egypt. They're all over the place, Mexico. So I think they are, there is a common denominator in those, and this way they're just reversing it, that this is, these are earthly things that are, everything is recognizable. And I said that's, that was the underpinning I tried to put into the first film ever, that everything would be kind of familiar, mm -hmm. new. And they're, they're pulling this off spectacularly, I think. Dave Filoni is having a huge impact on how um, credible it is to George Lucas's original vision. Yeah. Rowan, we've talked before about the symbolism of the ball and the, from Lone Wolf and Cub, and, and uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to think that, you know, the ball from the cockpit, the little knob yes. on the lever, is, is this series dice. It's the thing that kind of is a metaphor for this relationship that, uh, you know, that develops through these characters. So is it, is it cool to, to think of that for you, Roger, that, you know, they've, they've kind of picked up this little ball from the cockpit as one of the little greeblies that's been added and made it into this massive symbol? Yeah, I, I love that. I thought, you know, I thought when I saw him unscrew it first off, that it was going to turn up. And it's funny because when I was young, when I was a student, I was working and putting up marquees. And we had old trucks, and I used to do the same to the driver. We used to unscrew it when he couldn't look, and then he couldn't change it. It's exactly what we did. So probably somebody did that in their youth. Uh, um, I, I thought that was really funny, but, yeah, and then I thought it's going to come back, and, of course, with Ashoka, it does come back. Yeah, it kind of reminisced to me of the ball in um, 
when Luke was training. Mm. And that's a ball floating around and, and it goes, it went back to there for me. Grogu's uh, meditation pose here is dead set one of the one of the cutest things I've ever seen. Do we do we think he made contact with a Jedi uh, and and who? I mean, do we have obviously in the episode we don't see who 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 Grogu was talking to, but we know he was probably talking to someone. I mean, Baz, do you have any guesses about about first off who that Jedi is, and you know, second, if they might be part of the team that comes to rescue him in these next few episodes? Well, I'm I'm betting Luke Skywalker. Um, I don't know how they're going to do it, but I think Luke's going to turn up, whether it's deep fake technology or, <laughs> or you know, it's a recast actor or something, but, or just shot from the back mysteriously under a cloak. Yeah. I, I just think, I somehow think Luke's going to turn up. But I was talking to a friend of mine in Glasgow the other day, and he, he's convinced that it might be a dead Jedi that uh, Grogu's made contact with, someone like Kanan or mm. maybe even Qui-Gon. Or that Yoda. would be interesting, or or Yoda, yeah. So that that's kind of interesting, and and uh, he also reckons that you know we never saw a body from Ace Windu, and people who fall in Star Wars tend to come back. So uh, <laughs> so there are any number of people it could be. No, they it, you know there might be a relationship to Qui Gon because he is so loved and he's kind of disappeared, and um, and there has to be a race <laughs> of these little things that you know. What, there's one Yoda and now a little baby one. So there has to be a race of them somehow. Maybe they'll get to a place where there's thousands of them, like, <laughs> <laughs> like the minion. <laughs> I keep thinking back to um, Amy Sedaris's line about if this thing ever spawns or divides, yeah. I want one. So maybe yeah. that's how they reproduce them. Maybe just right. like grab them. They, they kind of <laughs> yeah. pop off little new. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Now around this time we see uh, we see Slave One flying into frame, uh, which is that was one of the most exciting uh, moments in the in the series for me so far because it was so shocking and unexpected because you're not you're, you're not thinking about that at all you just you're focused entirely on 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 Baby Grogu on the on the rock and then all of a sudden you know oh my God it's it's Boba Fett what is he doing here I mean. Uh, what 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 did you what did you guys uh, make of that of that reveal Well. I suspected they were going to have to deal with him. <laughs> he's <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. such a revered kind of character, and he is in. I thought he has to pop up, and I guess they're using the same trick. He's just arriving. There's no kind of build-up music and, oh, here he comes, you know, and all of that. This was a way to bring him in to give the same impact that um, that he had originally because, I mean, really he's a background character that there wasn't any – any kind of focus on him at all mm. but you know every fan in the world is you know there's certain favorites but he's certainly up there right at the top and you look at the mandalorian and, and you know he is same arm he's got everything going for him that you imagine boba fett is so i i hope they develop this into way more and i hope ashoka because i thought at the end of this i hope that's not goodbye i hope she copes coming as a character because she was awesome mm. and the way that rosaria played her she was so impactful on screen so they've got these kind of things now opening that you know this this can go on and on <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. What um you uh you I don't if I'm remembering correctly you didn't work on Empire but you were uh, you did direct second unit on Return of the Jedi. Do you recall if yeah. you ever worked on any scenes that had Boba Fett in them? I don't think I did. Um, I'm I'm trying to remember because but I knew because I knew Robert Watt's brother. You know I don't know if you know how it came out. Jeremy Bullock got the part. So they, there wasn't anybody available. <laughs> He's Robert Watts' brother-in-law. So yeah. Robert, Robert called him. Robert Watts, the production, well, then he was the producer as well. Robert called him and said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm out of work. I'm at home. And he said, we're driving here tomorrow. If you can fit in the suit, you've got a job. <laughs> and Jeremy owns up to this and said, I've got this whole – I was with Robert Watts at, a, at a, an event, Star Wars event, and him and I were getting a few stragglers coming in for autographs. There was a queue around the block. Robert <laughs> 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 at one point leaned over to him and said, you know, you should give me a percentage of this. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I don't think so, because George had me 10 days working with Ewoks. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, most of it was all in the, the sort of redwoods. Yeah, no, I do a lot of other stuff. I, I can't... I, was racking my brains if I had, because he seemed so familiar to me. There may have been something, because I had a lot of scenes over the six weeks to shoot. Now, um, now, one thing we, you you definitely do have a connection to is, uh, you know, Boba Fett's weapon in this episode, the the gaffy stick that he was using to to crush some Imperial skulls before he uh, before he gets his armor. Yeah, you know, we, we mentioned up top, it's very similar to the gaffy sticks used by the Tuscan Raiders in the in the original film. But yeah, Roger, can you just sort of tell us a little bit more about sort of how that like where that weapon came from? Yeah, I was I'd done a deal with Baptist. They were the gun hire facility in London, and they could you know they could supply Sterling's for a huge armies, everything. And um, I used to go in there and just search for weapons. That's how I came up with um, with Chewbacca's because I found it, mm-hmm. the bowcaster, and loved it. And that wasn't in the, in the script or in Ralph McQuarrie's drawings ever. That was a, a, He was more like a gun that the others had. And as soon as George saw it, he changed the script and said, no, I love it. And I was thinking, with the Tuscan Raiders, I just thought, I have these are desert bandits, you know, and I spent a lot of time in Morocco and Tunisia. So... I wanted to give them rough weapons that were different to anything else. And I found this stick with this ball on the end that they could whack people with. Beautiful, heavy weight. And I loved it. So I didn't even show George that one. I just got a mace from a from an old medieval weapon and drilled a hole in the end and stuck it on there. And there's only one of those. The others don't have the mace. If you look, there was a I was able to reproduce some, so we didn't put the mace on it. But um, the one with the mace is the one that's used. Mm. And um, it just seems so perfect for wild kind of sand people, you know? Yeah. So I I, I guess the implication then is that, you know, at some point between, you know, crawling out of the Sarlacc pit and and re-emerging at... That, that Boba Fett has acquired one of these sticks from a, uh, from a Tuscan Raider. I mean, Baz, do you think we'll ever see that story one day? I, possibly, but I don't even think we need to at this point. I think yeah. you can sort of assume that, yes, he crawled out of the Sarlacc pit. We, we've, we've had the seeds of this story. Like the Crate Dragon has been established as a Sarlacc killer. So, you know, uh, it's using an empty Sarlacc pit as a nest in that first episode. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if the Crate Dragon killed the Sarlacc, Boba got out of it. Um, he's been rescued by Tuscan Raiders, which is why he wears the 
either cloaked and carries their weapons. Um, so maybe he's been bunkering down with them for a while. It's it's kind of you know a, a it's nice all there. Story. Yeah, it's all there if you want to put the pieces together. So I don't think we I need think to. It's see all there. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's a lone wandering kind of loner. Yeah. Yeah. They were scavenging <laughs> weapons and stuff. He, 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 <laughs> whatever the, is you know they're opportunist as to how to make things mm. work. So. And just thinking about that lovely um, moment in an earlier episode this season where you see the Tuscan Raider cleaning the Bantha's teeth with his gaffy stick. And I thought, maybe that's what they were all along. They were just uh, teeth cleaning. <laughs> maybe these are peaceful people. <laughs> yeah, giant, giant toothpicks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've never we've never seen them used uh, quite as savagely uh, before as we as we did this episode. Um, the the stormtroopers are, are, are getting pretty comprehensively owned throughout this episode, as as always. Roger, you you know you you built those original stormtroopers blasters. You gave them those weapons. Does it disappoint you to see the stormtroopers waste the weapons you gave them? I mean, they can they can never hit anything. They, they can't hit anything, and they get shot so easily. But I guess that's that's the kind of simplicity of the um, you know George's audience was twelve years old. That's what he made the films for. So nobody ever questions that. But um, and it makes heroes out of Han and Luke and everybody who deal with them so well. Mm. So you know, and it's just carried on. I mean, they—that's they, part of the tradition now of Star Wars and Mandalorian that these things are easily taken out. Yeah, they're not the brightest. Lock, <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? Yeah. So, despite their uh, their new ordinance, we see a stormtrooper with a mortar in this one, which is well, kind of interesting. And that's that's interesting because that's not new ordinance, but it, I mean, it is and it isn't. So. Roger, yeah. you, I don't know, you, you might have something to add to this, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure we've actually seen the Stormtroopers carrying around those mortars on their backs since the original movie, yeah. but they've never actually used them until now. They've always had the little mortar strapped to their back, but they've ne- we've never, until this episode, we've never actually seen one, you know, use use one like, like they did in this episode. So assuming that what, that's what that was, that was, that was really cool. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I, I got some massive weapons on the first one that we gave them because I thought they can't just all have... You've got to see them going into battle. So I I, I filmed um, with Baptist original guns for the documentary, and there's one huge one in there that you, you, you only really recognize them with Sterlings that were their blasters, but um, they did have some <laughs> fairly awesome kind of firepower if they needed it. And they've got uh, landing craft now as well, which is, uh, we've seen that uh, being used by First Order Stormtroopers, but this is, you know, Imperial Stormtroopers using landing craft, which are very similar in design. So that was kind of a cool new thing, and I can't wait to get the toy of it. So <laughs> hurry up and make that. What, what I loved, actually, was, and that's in um, the episode before the last one, when one of them's riding one of the, the, the scooter bikes. Yes. And it, and he goes down the mountain, bounces onto the bottom. That is some, that's how I imagine it when we first saw them, but um, we could never do it. it. There was not the technology to do it. But I think those are great, what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because so those speeder bikes, that, that would have been part of, like, 
that would have been a bit of what you were doing second unit on in Return of the Jedi, right? Like the speeder bikes in the in the forest. Yeah, and a lot in um, Phantom Menace. Yeah, no, it's the next level, and they're really that that I love. You know, this is stuff that George would have done if he had the technology. He just didn't. Mm. Um, but um, now, yeah, <laughs> the, the believability is growing, episode so, by episode. So you would have got a big kick out of seeing Cobb Vanth, Timothy Oliphant's character, on the pod racer engine at speed yeah. bike. Yeah. Well, again, yeah. I mean, you know, those are shots that uh, they're so reminiscent going back well especially to phantom menace that um they they again that it's all a layering of of stuff that we love i mean I, I think i've always said to people out of phantom menace just the pod race sequence is worth the price of an admission <laughs> well it's funny that you, you know baz that you say that because now that i think about it cobb vanth kind of is the roger christian of the star wars universe in the sense that you know, Cobb Vanth is a man who sees some armor lying around, and he says, "I can use that." He he sees a he sees a pod racer, you know, jet engine lying around, and he says, "I've got a use for that." Uh, you know, he's yeah. a very practical man. He's finding use for all this scrap that he finds in Tatooine. It's it's you know, there's some similarities there. Yeah, but very much so. I think they're always <laughs> it's that world, you know, and it's gone through now from Ray in, in scrapyards and getting pieces and selling them. The whole world came through and it's coming through now again in the Mandalorian. Yeah. Now, in, in defense of those stormtroopers that, that were that were being defeated, Boba Fett was hitting them very hard, even without his armor. Baz, you, you mentioned to me off air, you thought maybe Boba Fett had some some cybernetic enhancements. Yeah, that's right. I, I kind of... Um... I think that you don't, even if you've only spent a few days in the Sarlacc's belly, you probably don't get out of that unscathed. And, you know, Timur Morrison's a 59-year-old man, and Boba Fett, I think at this point, is meant to be about 42. Mm-hmm. So clearly he's he, it's taken its toll on him. <laughs> and he's, got, you know, he's lost his hair. He's got the stripy scar on his face. So I'm thinking maybe it's affected his limbs or something. So maybe he's had to have some limbs replaced with cybernetic limbs. And you see Fennec Shand saying, Boba Fett, save me. And she's got the cybernetic gut no mm. so maybe, maybe boba's got some expertise in that and he's he's uh sporting a full set of cybernetic limbs because maybe his his limbs got digested in the belly of the sarlacc yeah so i kind of think that's yeah no no one hits that hard unless they've got some something backing them up yeah now we, we haven't mentioned that this episode was actually uh directed by robert rodriguez directing his first episode of the mandalorian um, you know, and I, I feel like with those action sequences, that's where that really came through. Like Rod- Robert Rodriguez really gave those a- action sequences that that extra oomph. I mean, it's kind of funny because, like, I'm sure Robert Rodriguez, when he heard about the volume, would have been like a kid in a candy store. You know, given his love of green screen, you look at something like Sin City, etc. Like the the way that he's used green screen in the past. But then if you look at this episode, what I thought was interesting was a lot of it seemed to be shot in real locations in um, in Southern California. Like you, you can absolutely visit Tython if you want. It's a, you know, it's not called Tython. I can't remember what it's called off the, off the top of my head, but but it's a real place. Um, so, you know, it seems Baz like he, he used the volume, but obviously, but but he didn't abuse it. Yeah, um, I, I've stopped a long time ago trying to work out which is volume shot and what's not. Like I think episode one this season I stopped because it was pointless. It was just so well done. Uh, but yeah, it was really cool to see uh, a proper location in this one. And, you know, they, they really used that to its advantage. Like you can see 
um, insects and grass kind of waving in front of the, you know, in the foreground of the camera. And, you know, you just don't get that in the volume. And uh, I, I kept feeling a little bit sorry for um, for Pedro Pascal being out in the sun in that <laughs> outfit. Um, <laughs> if indeed it was Pedro Pascal, we'll never. If indeed we'll it was know. Pedro Pascal, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it was really nice to see uh, locations like that being used, and and he he really picked some great stuff. I mean, that location could end up being as iconic as um, those pointy rocks in Star Trek, where Kirk fought the Gorn. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It, yeah, it's totally a throwback to that kind of TV uh, making as well. Um, Roger, have you have you seen much of the volume? Like, have you seen sort of the behind the scenes things with the volume or, or any or any of that sort of stuff? Yeah, no, I've watched it all. You know, this is what George wanted to do um, for the for the sequels, and um, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, this is what we all want to deal with now, if we can, and uh, with Robert Rodriguez. Don't forget where he started with $7,000 and he made El Mariachi. Mm -hmm. So I I think with that in mind, he's completely, you know, I remember watching a a John Favreau's cooking show. (laughs) Yes. He was with Robert, with Robert showing him his cauliflower um, pizzas. But he obviously went down there before they made Mandalorian because yeah. Robert is so advanced in what he's doing in terms of all of that. And I think probably then it came back the other way. So suddenly they're getting on a real location. So it, it kind of took me back to El Mariachi. Yeah. <laughs> Baz, you mentioned obviously Fennec Shand coming back in this episode. Um, you know, that was exciting. That was something obviously a lot of fans had had speculated about. Had you started to give up hope at all that Fennec Shand would make a reappearance in this season? No, I kind of I knew she'd be back. Yeah. I knew she'd be back. And and as soon as we saw uh, Tim Morrison as Boba Fett in episode one, you know, the mystery of who those boots were was finally solved for me. Because mm. I, I I was actually convinced it was probably Moff Gideon, mm-hmm. um, but uh, no, but it was obviously Boba Fett, and uh, she now owes him a debt, and and uh, they owe the Mando a debt, so it's it's becoming quite a little squad here. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and when yeah. I when I spoke to my friend Phil, he he's got a theory that we're heading towards a seven samurai finisher here, where the Mando assembles a squad of seven to go and rescue, um, to go on the rescue mission. So, uh, um, and we're we're sort of speculating as who those seven might be and and they kind of map on quite nicely to uh the, the original seven samurai mm. that's a very good point you know and it all goes back to there so that probably is a good theory that mm. i hope yeah true we're, we're <laughs> dealing with uh, a lot of side characters here who have some kind of connection or motivation to yeah. to make sure mando and grogu are safe so it's it's kind of uh, it seems to be building towards that it's, yeah i'm pretty sure you're right um, then we see Boba Fett go to get his armor, which leads to one of the coolest moments in the whole show so far when he flies in with his armor and just goes to town on the stormtroopers. I mean, this is the coolest Boba Fett has ever been, right? Has he ever been cooler than he is in this moment? No, he's redeemed himself after 30, you know, nearly 40 years of thinking that Boba Fett's gone out like a, a twerp um, <laughs> by, by taking a bad hit from a, you know, a random blind guy. And ended up in 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 the in the Sarlacc pit, but yeah, he, he redeems himself now. And it's interesting to think that, you know, the point where the stormtroopers decide it's enough is when he starts shooting at them with his knees. Yeah, <laughs> and, they, and they just go, "Now we're done. We're done. No, can't take any more of this." 
And this is the first time we've ever seen him use those knee darts on screen, I, I think. Uh, I, I think, think you know, is, they've, yeah. they've been mentioned yeah, in reference books, but yeah, we've never seen them in on screen. So that was that was cool. I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that in The Mandalorian where yeah. it's existed in the reference books or the role-playing games or the video games or whatever, but mm. we've never seen it on screen until now. They're pulling stuff from from everywhere. But yeah, I, I love this. I love the moment when the stormtroopers were just like, "Back to the ship!" Like this is no, <laughs> yeah, no more of this. Yeah, exactly. away. <laughs> and just that—that's that one straggler that had to jump up onto the onto the uh, onto the ramp after the ship had already started taking off. I felt bad for that guy. Uh, <laughs> now we've we've talked about the challenges in, in previous episodes. We've talked about the challenge of you know when Boba Fett does show up, differentiating him from all the other Mandalorians who have appeared since Boba Fett, who, you know, have actually ended up doing more than him on screen over the years, purely, you know, Boba Fett is, as, as Roger said, mostly a background character in the original trilogy. And since then, we've seen, you know, we've seen Mandalorians and the Clone Wars and Rebels who are much more active. We've seen the Mando himself, obviously, uh, you know, even, even Cobb Vanth in Mando armor arguably did more than Boba Fett actually did um, in his, in his one episode appearance. They immediately set Boba Fett apart from the other Mandalorians, though, when he appeared in this. I mean, uh, you get a sense straight away that Din Djarin is skilled, but Boba is on a different level um, in terms of talent and, and just ruthlessness, right? Yes, and I, I think, you know, that, that would be something they must have had a lot of conversations about. How do we keep his mystique? Mm. How do we keep his character apart from Mandalorian? And how do we keep that level of intrigue with him and i think that's all part of how they've shaped that character mm. i am um, i was convinced that when he did come back he would be a straight-up adversary and it's great to see that boba fett has a moral code now and uh, and some kind of mandalorian philosophy um and believes himself to, to, to be, think, to be yeah i imagine yeah. Like that i didn't think of him as an outright baddie you know and yeah I mean, you have to you have to bring him into the fold, as it were, mm-hmm. um, especially because the way it's going and, and the audience and everybody with Baby Yoda, it's got that same Star Wars ageless. I watch it with my son, you know, he's six. Yeah. He loves it. So I think rather than just being, say, an out-and-out baddie, violent person, they're, they're managing to bring him into the fold. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting about that, though, Baz, because I, I agree with you, I definitely thought he might be more of a straight-up antagonist for the Mandalorian. I, I thought that might be how they separate him from the Mandalorian, but but obviously we see that they're going to be allies at least for a little while. Having said that, I, I don't know if it's so much about him adapting any sort of Mandalorian code or, or sense of honour so much as it, it's, it's just sort of the classic bounty hunter code, right, of like, I said I was going to do this job, I have to do it now. So he says, "I'll, you know, in return for giving me my armor back, I'll, 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 I'll uh, you know, see to it that that Baby Yoda, that that Grogu is safe." I mean, to me, it's it's still very much like you know, it's Lee Van Cleef in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. To you know, the, it's the guy who says, "I'll, I'll pay you to kill the guy that hired you to kill me." And yeah. it's like, well, I'm still going to kill you because I was hired to do it, <laughs> but I will also take your money and kill the guy that who hired. Hired me to kill you, uh, you know. So to me, I feel like Boba could still turn on them eventually if, um, you know, if the right job is there. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I do. I, I do wonder why or how Boba allowed uh, Cobb Vanth to use his armor for so long, um, if he indeed knew where it was. So it's um, 
it's kind of interesting to to think why is he turning up looking for it now, or did it take him however many years it's been since the, the end of Return of the Jedi? Is it five years or something mm. to to find Cobb Vanth? And just when he finds him, the Mando takes the armor off Cobb. You don't know where. He- or what he's been doing. I mean, whether that's ever going to be answered, I doubt it. I think, again, that's all the things that keep his mystery. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting to think that he, he maybe has enough of a, of a moral code to see that this guy was using it for good yes. and has allowed him to keep using it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, that or seems he, unlikely. I don't know. Or he was in carbon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <He> just got <laughs> out. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. I think. I, I think. I don't know. I guess. I guess he's just really unlucky because yeah, we see him at the end of episode one, and he's just discovered. It looks like he's just sort of stumbled upon the town where Cobb Vanth is, and then we see Mando riding away in the opposite direction with his with his armor. So yeah, it's just it's been a real a real struggle for him to get that armor back. I feel for the guy. Uh, <laughs> Now, we, we find out in this episode there's been a lot of debate over the years. Baz, we've done an episode on this previously about, you know, the, the lore of Mandalore, uh, you know, is, is, was Django fed a Mandalorian? Is Boba fed a Mandalorian? What does it mean to be a Mandalorian? You know, and obviously the Mandalorian has opened up the scope of that quite a bit by talking about, you know, foundlings and the idea that you can sort of be drafted into the Mandalorian uh, way of life, I guess. Um, we find out in this episode that Django was... A foundling. Baz, in, in your mind, I mean, is it settled? Django is a Mandalorian. We don't ever need to have that argument again. Or is there still some some wiggle room there? No wiggle room. That's done. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the end of that contentious debate. He's definitely a Mandalorian. Um, I think so. Yeah. 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 I, so. I mean, there's, there, you know, they have shown in, in the past few episodes that there are different levels of mandalorian mm-hmm. yeah he, he's he's one of the uh, few children who were separated out and um he he's like the pure completely retrained into what he is yeah and there's nothing outside of that i've uh, i've seen some surprise online that uh about the admission that um boba fett's armor is Django fett's armor and i, I always assumed that i guess so it didn't really surprise me at all. It makes sense, right? He's just like repainted it at some point or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I did love in this episode when he sort of pulls up, uh, you know, and I guess, I'd, again, it's something else I'd never given much thought. The, uh, you know, the, the serial numbers essentially on, on his armor, like he pulls up a full, uh, you know, uh, ownership history of, of, of where, you know, the armor came from and, and that it was his dad's, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, making a compelling case. I just, I didn't realize they kept records like that to, to that degree in the <laughs> Star Wars galaxy. Maybe they do. Maybe the Mandalorians have to. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, maybe every Mandalorian has to go down and register their armor at the DMV. Yeah, um, yeah, probably. The, yeah. The, the, the department like of that, Mandalorian yeah. Vambraces. Yeah. <laughs> Boba, Boba mentions the Mandalorian Civil War here. Um, you know, he says, my father was part of the Mandalorian Civil War, which is what led to some Mandos being exiled to Concord and, and becoming Death Watch, which we assume eventually evolved into the, the children of the Watch, um, you know, which is the cult that we now know raised uh, the Mando Dinjarin. I mean, it's cool, Roger. You sort of you you touched on this a moment ago. It's cool to see Mando kind of being initiated into the wider Mandalorian story, like learning that there's a whole world and culture beyond this very little sort of isolated group that he knew about. Yeah, definitely. And I think that 
you know, that's food for future prequels, maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would come. Uh, you know, they're addressing it like George did with the Star Wars world. So there's, there's an opening bit of information there enough to think, okay, we want to know about that. Mm. So, you know, a Civil War of Mandalorians could be an interesting um, group of episodes to come. Mm. At, at this point, um, Din Djarin feels like he's in the process of breaking free of a cult, um, you know, with the help of the, the love of a, of a small child, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. is, you know, which is just a lovely thing to think that he, he's slowly learning there's a whole new world out there and there's potential for, you know, other fatherly relationships and things like that. So it's, it's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, that's related, you know, I mean, George had his brought up with three children on his own as a mm. father. Mm. So he was very much that you're learning from the child. And uh, I know myself, you're, you're constantly being caught out and I'm learning all the time. <laughs> so, uh, they're learning and we're learning. So that's, yeah. again, it's, it's a familiarity, I think, whether you, whether you understand it on the surface or not, but it's all going on. Mm. So even, even with a 30-something-year-old and a 7-year-old, you're still learning. That does not bode well for me. Every day. <laughs> Every day, and it's different, <laughs> but similar. <laughs> and you can't keep thinking about why am I making the same mistakes again? Due <laughs> to the limit, and you do make the same mistakes, but that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we see. Uh, you know, I guess with you know speaking fathers and sons. I mean, we see a uh, we see Bo- Boba Fett's. You know, he's got a line here that echoes a line of Django Fett's in the prequels when he says, you know. I'm just a simple man making my way through the galaxy like my father before me. I mean, obviously, like my father before me is also a you know a line from Return of the Jedi. I mean, I, I really like these nods that are tying in the men, and we've seen this throughout the Mandalorian, tying the prequels and the originals and the sequels together because they can sometimes feel like three sort of very distinct uh, stories. But you know, the fact that we now see an adult Boba Fett on screen referencing the prequels i mean to me it just it just gives it a little bit more connectivity than just sort of dubbing over boba fett with tam morrison in in the in the in the in the dvd releases you know what i mean to make it feel like it's all part of the one the one story i think the mandalorian i mean it's obviously it's it's its its own story and you know i think the heart of the story like you say baz is that relationship between you know the mando finding his way through the world at the same time that baby yoda is sort of discovering the world but yeah, it is also you know it's doing the Lord's work in tying all of these different uh, these these different elements together. Yeah, and I, I, again, I go back to Dave Filoni, who really is George is entrusted with, and he's he knows this universe probably better than anyone, and he's mm. had it master direct as the master to the child, as it yeah. were. And I, I think he's very influential in, in bringing in these little things that connect. And George was good at that. And I think that they're, they're, again, essential. I think that's what makes it such riveting viewing for all of us. Everybody, every fan out there is recognizing little bits that are so tiny sometimes, but they're enough to give you a connection. Yeah. Yeah. As, as soon as I um, heard the sound of the ship, Coming in, I knew it was Slave One, just, right. from, just from hearing yeah. Millicent kind of the sound. Yes. And, and I think that might actually be more from Episode 2 than it is from 
yes. Empire Strikes Back because you know the sound design on that ship and the asteroid sequence was amazing, yeah. and, and that's where I remember it from, not the originals. So that again ties the originals yes. and the yeah. and the prequels together for me. Yeah. yeah. Now, Roger, you you mentioned earlier that you know the 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 Razor Crest has that sort of you know what a hunk of junk kind of appeal that uh, that the Falcon has, but that is uh, well, it's it's a it's particularly junked after this episode. I mean, we see them blow up the the Razor <laughs> the Razor Crest on screen. I mean, uh, d- did you did you guys ever? I I was just thinking the other day. It's funny that you know in Star Wars, obviously because of the nature of it, we see these ships go into battle time and time and time again. But if it's a ship we recognize, you know, it's obviously always going to be safe because they can right. they just pull it out and just keep marketing it forever and ever and ever. I I. I'm, I was stunned when they destroyed the Razor Crest. I mean, there's no way back for this thing, right? It is gone. Maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, the one before, it was pretty wrecked. And yeah. The episode before, it went, went into, the, into the water after crash landing and then after it had been scavenged and things. So there seems to be droids and and creatures abound who can repair these things. So <laughs> I don't know or he's going to get another ship, but I think he's so identified with it now that yeah, somehow yeah. he's got to put it back together again or somebody can, or maybe he'll get find another yeah. one. I don't know. That's the only way he'll have to find another yeah. make a model because this one's, yeah, I, no, I feel I'm, that was the tragedy for me. I, yeah. of, of the title of this episode. I, uh, I I bought the Haslab one. Yeah. What was the price tag uh, on that one, Bess? I'm not going to say on air. Because, uh, <laughs> I think my wife might listen to this. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but now I'm, I'm gutted. I, I want to talk to someone at Haslab Customer Services, please. And <laughs> see what we can do. <laughs> no one warned us about this. It, it's, it is true. I mean, the Millennium Falcon is indelibly kind of connected to Han. Mm. And... and gone on to Ray. So the ships are a huge character in Star Wars. So that's what I wonder, because I, I was sitting with a friend of mine now with my son watching the episode before, mm. and there was a couple of spectacular shots of a little tiny figure and the ship sitting there in the, in the dusk light. And we, I remember saying, wow, what a beautiful shot. Mm. And um, so... There's a, an affection <laughs> for the ships, and there is an affection for his. So I hope that somehow we get another one back. I don't know. Yeah. But it is a loss. It's a big loss, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that had to have been considered. They're not doing anything that's not considered in the show. Yeah, exactly. No, you, you, you push a character to the brink by taking absolutely everything away from him, don't you? And, and uh, yeah. you know that includes his, his you know, iconic... <laughs> Equipment and you know everything. Yeah. So, so this down. is this is the episode where the the stakes really got high. Yeah, mm. no, he's stripped down to nothing, but that's where people shine. Mm. Yes, and that's part of the Buddhist philosophy that's deep down behind it with um, George's um, crafting the characters. You know, the Buddhist mm. mentality of all of it, and the Jedi is everything. When you there's nothing left, that's when you find it. So maybe that's where they're leading. Yeah. Now, what Mando is able to save uh, a couple things from the wreckage. He's able to save the the Beskar staff that he um, that he received last episode, um, and he's able to save the li- the little ball that we that we talked about before. Yeah, that's 
which is, you know, that's, that's everything. Um, you know, and I, I still think we talked about this last episode, Baz, I think you alluded to it earlier. I, I still think we're, we're heading towards Grogu having to choose between, you know, the ball and the saber, like, uh, like, like we see Digro having to do in Lone Wolf and Cub. Um, you know, when he has to choose, you know, whether the, the childish things or the assassin's path and the, and Lone Wolf puts, puts both of them in front of him and makes him choose. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think, st- I still think that little ball is going to be important in, in that one oh, yeah. um, later on. Yeah. He does yeah. seem pretty interested in the dark saber, I have to say. So maybe he does. I, I thought I was, I was like, Oh, is this, is this the sword in the, in the ball and sword, uh, uh, combo? Yeah. Um, so what, what, just quickly before we talk about the Darksaber, I mean, we also see uh, the Dark Troopers here um, who come and, and steal uh, Grogu, which, you know, and which is an unforgivable crime. Um, what did... W- w- Baz, you were a big fan of the, the Dark Forces video game back in the, mm. in the 90s. Uh, Roger, did you, did you ever get a chance to play that one? No, I didn't get that one. Baz, what, what, you know, was it, was it a big moment for you to see the Dark Troopers in action on, on screen? It was, yeah. They look amazing. They really do, and uh, I love everything. I love the coloring of them. I love the way they they move. Um, the animation direction on them is is fantastic. You know, it's that kind of IG eighty eight style, IG eleven style jerky kind of movement, but it really works for them. Yeah. And uh, you know, the way they 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 sort of land in in perfect formation and advance, and you know, they're they're really really good. And uh, I think the execution of them was perfect. Couldn't ask for more. Uh, no, I agree. Yeah, you need those kind of characters as the contrast too. So mm. now, Baz, these are these are cyborgs. So it definitely doesn't look like you know. A couple of episodes ago, we were speculating about what are those dudes in the in the vats? Are they you know? Is this part of the Emperor's cloning program? Are these baby Snokes? What's what's happening here? And you speculated they might be the Dark Troopers, but. You know, given that these are cyborgs, it doesn't look like they would have needed Grogu's blood for these. Does yeah, this no. does the reveal of the Dark Troopers change what you think is going on in those tubes? Yeah, it's got to be Baby Snooks now, or or Proto Snooks. Yeah, There's some kind of they're they're trying to make a a force sensitive being, um, and yeah, I think that that's what they're they're coming up with Snook style things. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Mm. Now we see we see Grogu at the end of the episode, obviously after he's been captured, uh, you know, tossing these stormtroopers around. I mean, it's cool, but it's also sad because he's a good boy. You know, we don't we don't want to see him having to use his powers to to hurt people. Um, you know, and and we said before this show is all about you know finding your way in the world, becoming the person you're meant to be, um, and. You know, when I see stuff like this, like Grogu using his powers to sort of choke the the stormtroopers, you know, I worry that that Grogu will be will be pushed down a, a dark path, and we've seen little hints of that in the in the series so far. Just to, I guess, just to remind us that that's possible. You know, that that this is there's still very much a nature versus nurture uh, angle at play here with Grogu. There's no guarantee that he grows up to be an enlightened being like um like Master Yoda. I mean, what what did you guys think of seeing Grogu? you know, force choke those, those troopers. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's the, the, um, it's the hero's journey, the truth of it, you know, back, right. You know, I go back to Luke with his father when he gets him down on his knees and he's wanted to kill the father and the father's wanted to kill him. And the moment where he can do it, he puts the sword down and forgives him 
and it goes down to love. That's all that's left. And I think that is an integral part of Star Wars. And I would imagine that that's where they're going to go with Baby Yoda. That because he's young, like Master Yoda's old. He's he's like the old Buddhist master who knows his way. He knows what it's all about. And I think the Baby Yoda has to get to that point, like everybody, like they've done with Anakin, like with everybody. That there has, a, there's always a choice in everybody, and this I think is a part of the Star Wars law. Mm. I imagine that's where it's going to go. That at some point, maybe it'll be against the Mandalorian. He has a choice. You know, this man who's taught him and saved him and everything. He's, he maybe he's got to kill him, and then there'll become a choice whether he goes to the dark side or he goes up the other side. Yeah, I imagine that's where this is going, and it would be fantastic if it is. Yeah. It's um it's interesting what we keep learning about Jedi and and forming attachments or relationships because obviously Ahsoka is wary of of Grogu's relationship with the Mandalorian because she's seen Anakin's relationship with his mother and with Padme go sour. Yes. Um but you know it didn't exactly work out for the Jedi not forming attachments because they they utterly failed in what they set out to do because they were aloof from society. So possibly, you know, there's a balance there. And, and yeah, you do have to take a chance like with any relationship. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And uh, um, I think that, you know, the, the Mandalorian and, and uh, Grogu's relationship will be a key to, to whether or not he falls to the dark side. It's, it's really up to the two of them working together to work that out. Yeah, um, and it'll, it'll be a huge kind of reveal of the Mandalorian's own kind of, is he just this lone killer who's just always walked away like Clint Eastwood always walked away he always went into the sunset he never yeah. formed those relationships so that's the Mandalorian's character and the same with the samurai they did the same they always walked away will we end up with that that he walks away or will they end up with you know that the, you know I, I cite this because George's relationship to Buddhism is very apparent in everything that there is the ultimate thing they talk about is non-attachment. But that doesn't mean to say that you don't love somebody or you are with somebody. It's a non-attachment to the things that you shouldn't be attached to. <laughs> yeah. So it's at the core of this, what's coming now, I think, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 I guess the very end of the episode, we see, uh, we see Moff Gideon, um, you know, uh, mocking uh, baby Yoda and 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 holding out the dark saber. I mean, Roger, as as the guy who you know who gave birth to the lightsaber, what do you have any thoughts on the the dark saber and the look of the dark saber? It's 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 kind of, it's familiar but new, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's obviously going to become. Maybe it'll become the icon of the series, like like the lightsaber is, because they had to find something. I think so. I'm wondering if that's you know, it's a mechanism to expose him to the dark side, mm. or, or it's um, it it's a become a, become an icon for sure. Yeah, like it'd be interesting to see kind of what what purpose it serves, like symbolically, as exactly. the as the series goes on. It, it has to be something. It's it's introduce that right way and it's becoming you know you can see that okay let's let's put this out as a teaser it's easter eggs coming in you know mm. 
All righty. I mean, I guess that that just about wraps us. But yeah, Roger, before we let you go, I mean, do do you have any any other thoughts on where the series might be might be headed from here, or or what you'd like to see from the series going forward? No, I'd love to see the seven samurai idea and all coming up and then going. <laughs> yeah. and then, uh, but and also, I'm intrigued to to really the most difficult thing for them is is he going into Jedi territory? Are we now going to finally see something? behind this mm. which would be amazing if they can pull it off but it's something that you know do you demystify when you get to that point mm. so i'd love to see that i'd love to see prequels where he comes from i mean all these things i i, I think it's endless what they can do now mm. i'm just excited to know that next episode we're going to see one of my favorite characters return um bill burr's mayfeld Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, as as teased at the end of this one, that's the seeds of Mando's rescue mission is to to get right. Mayfeld broken out of jail. We find <laughs> out he's he's serving fifty years in something called the Carthon Chopfields, um, for for his uh, for his jailbreak, which is interesting. You know, like the Carthon Chopfields sounds like a labor camp. Right, from it does maybe. sound like a mining, terrible place. Yeah, maybe it's breaking down starships from the civil from the Galactic yeah. War. Yeah, like maybe, 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 he's he's down, maybe he's breaking down another Razorback. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so, so that's that's kind of uh, an interesting thing that the New Republic uses labor camps because you know you think of the goodies yeah. maybe not doing that kind of thing. So you know, <laughs> again, it's going to take us into interesting territory to uh, yep. to see where where the New Republic's headed and is it going to be as bad as the guys we just got out of power right um (laughs) i am curious what he needs bill burr for i went back and watched uh, um a part of the the episode where bill burr first appeared in season one um episode uh six the the prisoner and i'm i'm no more enlightened after watching that as to what he brings to the table than i than i than i was at the end of this episode i've seen people speculate that he needs him for his tracking abilities but that's not really a thing in that episode they mentioned that he's good at, at shooting um yeah. but i mean they're all pretty good at that so yeah. um, unless know. he revealed off screen that he specifically used to work from off gideon and uh and therefore, therefore might know where his base is or well, yeah. I guess yeah, he because he did. He was like a former imperial sharpshooter, so maybe they sort of figure he knows his way around. Mm. Maybe, but we we will find out next week. Yeah, yeah. And Roger, just before we let you go, mate. I mean, last time you were on the show, and and, and you, met, you mentioned it briefly as well. This episode, um, you mentioned the documentary you were you were yes. working on about um, you know all the original sets of Star Wars and all the people who worked behind the scenes on Star Wars. How is that kind of tracking i mean i know this year has been uh, obviously quite a challenge for for everybody it's um i've got some amazing stuff paul bateman uh the british artist who's a mate of mine he he um he formed a massive relationship with ralph macquarie mm-hmm. and paul kind of uh, ralph trained him he he he's got ralph's paintbrushes in his photoshop and um, huge friend. He knows so many stories about Ralph, so he's telling those stories. But um, I found in Toronto there's a 3D interactive studio, which is a simple version of what The Mandalorian use. Mm-hmm. And um, so Paul has painted me the two cantina sets, one that Ralph designed and one we used, as 3D interactive so I'm in those walking about. I'm actually sitting in the booth in a painted Ralph Macquarie version of the set. 
sitting where Han Solo, and I've got a reproduction of Han's gun. It's a perfect repro, and I bring that up and explain that. I explain the cantina sets. He's now just arriving in about two days for the next session, uh, the Millennium Falcon Hold with the chess game. Awesome. So I'm, I'm sitting in there, and now because of COVID, I needed David West Reynolds to come to Toronto where the, the borders are closed here. They're closed to America. You mm. can't get in. So I decided, okay, then I'm going to turn him into a hologram. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting with Stephen, and the hologram comes on over the chess game, and we're doing our conversations like that. I'm doing as much as I can. I'm doing some amazing animation. The, the American uh, financier was doing a film with some guys. Yeah, so his animators are in up in Scandinavia. And they're doing, he's doing a movie with them, and they're doing ultra-realistic animation, but um, in anime style for me. So I'm doing, like, I've got how I imagine Star Wars. I'm not using clips from the film, because everyone's seen those a hundred times. I, I have my imagination of a space garage looking grungy with a, a speeder being repaired by a kid and oil dripping. I've got, um, I'm going to have the... Um, garage in the homestead opening and a speeder coming out and drawing off that loops loop speeder uh -huh. and um i'm doing all these kind of 3d animation and now the millennium falcon will be amazing it's beautiful what he's painted so they're all ways of i imagine i'm, I'm getting a clip of the seven of um forbidden planet a uh, forbidden fortress so that um, I can describe how the samurai influence in it, the King Arthur Excalibur influence. I'm getting all, so I'm getting clips of that. They've done me a beautiful animation of, of two samurais fighting. So I'm explaining the influences, how my influences were, because it's all about the work that I did and John Barry. That's the basic formula of this. And... Um, Guillermo del Toro, who I've interviewed for half an hour, has some amazing insight into Star Wars. He, he's very heartfelt when he speaks. So uh, we're going to do another session in December when he's finished shooting his movie here. Um, I, I'm doing a lot of things like that. To, and I, I found these clips, so we're trying to see if we can use them, where James Cameron says when he watched Star Wars, that's what made him a director. That's what mm -hmm. made him want do it. Christopher Nolan, who I spoke to about this when he was here, says the same thing. It was Star Wars made me want to be a director. Same with Guillermo. So I'm trying to go into as wide as possible that and the philosophy behind it. I'm explaining why this film connected to the planet, why I've got I've got A.R. Rahman, who's the really he's the John Williams of the world, but Indian. Mm -hmm. They're interviewing him in India for me now on his relationship to Star Wars. I'm doing all these kind of things going into this world that's never really been put together like that. So dealing with COVID is just really hard. So I've got people shooting in England now. I've got people. I've got the guy who was the manager of the, guns, of the camera store. He, he was the one who showed me the box mm -hmm. and said, yep. go and have a dig around in there. And I found the, the Graflex handles. I've got him being interviewed. The, the original carpenter who made the wooden R2-D2 is here, and I've already interviewed him. And I'm animating the little wooden one as a creep character. 
because it's never been seen. It's not part of the Star Wars lore, but that's where it gave birth to the entire film, because without R2-D2, George didn't have a movie. Yeah. And you make C-3PO. I'm trying to get um, footage of the Maria that it came from. I'm doing all sorts of stuff, trying to cope with COVID and trying not to be boring. I'm trying to do things so differently. So um, we're due to release on May the 4th, if we can. Mm. It sounds amazing, yeah. And, you know, it sounds like you're really having to use your initiative amid COVID in much the same way as George was using his initiative in the 70s with no money. Like the holograms that might be yeah. around a problem is amazing. <laughs> it's like, how am I going to do this? Because I've got yeah. a hundred talking questions to me about how we started. And I thought, you know what, I'll turn you into holograms. So that's yeah. against green screen and then I'm going to fill it in. And um, David West Reynolds um the same i'm shooting him against green screen talking about all his original footage then i have to shoot myself here in a in a mixing theater as if he and i are together talking and explaining <laughs> stuff in in london now they're, they're shooting these other bits and pieces for me so i'm having to be really like like the first film and with obviously with no money it's the same thing we're doing a documentary you know um so we're you know, I don't know if we'll ever get a major release on it or not. We're, 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 we're dealing with Amazon to see. But at the same time, the original premise was if we make Blu-rays and DVDs and we approach every single fan club in the world, we can yeah. probably sell enough Blu-rays at a, at a really cheap price to cover our cost. And, and I think this is really for the fans. This is one that these questions I'm always asked, this is what it's for. So I'm trying to make it like a different film. I'm trying to find a word not documentary because documentary immediately goes to a to a position of oh this is what it's going to be and it's not kind of it's not where I want to be. This is like virtual memories of the time or something. Mm. It's different. So um, mm. I'm trying to do that if I can. Try to make it something unique really and not just you know and I, I didn't want to show clips i don't want to show anything like that it's it's the imagination of what we went through in george and it's a kind of homage to george as well of what he has done um really to create this whole world against and he's i don't know if you've seen the christopher nolan interview with george first I have, yeah. yeah so he said on that there were only five people stood by my side on this film and that was the art department that's me and john barry and he said it three times on it that's first time he's ever admitted that or said a lot of things about what he was doing and the struggles it was it was a horrible struggle mm. but i enjoyed every moment of it mm. so i'm trying to bring all of that in to what we and i'm referencing the mandalorian now because things <laughs> that we did are now you know that, that it's the same values of what because I loved Kurosawa. He was my mentor. When I made Black Angel, my short film, I was trying to be Kurosawa. That lit, I have his flags on the back of my nights, even though they're in, you know, back up in Scotland. And I love spaghetti westerns. You know, Sergio Leone was a huge favourite. So I understood as soon as George said, he didn't have to explain to me what he was trying to, to say, where most people didn't get it. So I'm trying to bring back that, kind of enthusiasm and invention and those things so that's that's the goal <laughs> speaking of of uh, black angel you were pushing towards a feature version of that weren't you is that any closer 
we got the finance. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> after three years, we got MGM Europe. They're all on board, the two financiers, and COVID struck two weeks later. Yeah. And we're closed down. So Harold, my producer, who's an elderly German producer, we did Nostradamus together. He immediately, His wife is a doctor, so he just went, I'm not staying here, and he went to his country house. He and I have been very careful, isolated. Mm-hmm. And now the vaccine is finally coming. Germany will be first. Um, he's getting it first. So we're now, he's now resurrecting everything to go into pre-production in in March. We have to make this film now. And I've got Toby Kebble to play the lead. Ooh, great. And I love Toby. Mm. And John Rhys-Davis to play one of the other big characters. And and Cheki Cario, who's the French actor who was my Nostradamus. So they're all still attached. They're all staying with me. Um, And... It, it funnily enough, I, I'm being kind of reminded of what my intention was and how to go because of Mandalorian mm. and the way they cut between scenes. They don't give you all of their, they'll suddenly go boom right into the heart of the next scene. And it's really invigorating. And so, you know, my original intention was to make like a spaghetti Western, but it's, it's ancient medieval kind of lore in the way that George was inspired. So the Mandalorian's really helping me personally. <laughs> we all are connected, you know? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. So where can people follow the progress of the, of the black angel and the star Wars, uh, docu docu memory documentary that you're, that you're working on? Um, my wife is a, is a huge PR and events and she's now, kind of take over and say, Roger, you've been quiet long enough. And I said, we have to be quiet because of Disney. I don't want any trouble. We don't want anything. <laughs> quiet. So in February, she's starting now to, it's called now Galaxy Built on Hope. Mm-hmm. And um, she's going to go full out. And, and our target is going to be every film, Star Wars film, kind of um, the, the legions, the Star Wars fan clubs. We're going that way because the fans don't, trust anymore these big adverts being blasted out they, they just had enough of it you don't believe it so we're going grassroots so in february it's all going to start teasers I'll, I'll do little bits of teasers and i'm, I'm going to probably put on youtube little bits not promoting the, the documentary just bits of stuff that i think i would like to hear <laughs> Awesome. It, it's, it sounds like the name of the genre you, you want to shoot for is documentary. Documentary. That's a good That's one. That's what I just said. <laughs> oh, did oh, you? No, so you got the oh. claim. Who gets the claim for that? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to have a story uh. start fight now. I must have missed that story. It's all good. <laughs> you can cut, cut me out. Uh, it's my fault. That was good because I kept thinking, what this is, it's like visual memories. So... <laughs> Fuck your memory. That's a good note. I'll credit right. you. Right. <laughs> we use that. A black angel will start coming online um, as soon as he's got going the next stage because the, the vaccine makes it possible because we couldn't travel. Because we're independent, we can't travel actors with insurance or the crew. Mm. They're getting away with it here, but they're all like Netflix and studios. They, they have enough money. They, they can stop for a week or month. We couldn't do that because we're independent, so we're making it the same way the original Star Wars was made. So I think coming into February, again, that will start to rise. Yeah. 
finally, it's been so long, you know. It, it, the only good thing is I was thinking back to George Lucas because it took him, what, three years to write the script and he kept redoing and redoing. I've been doing the same. So in the end, I've been honing it and honing it. So in the end, maybe the time will have improved it. And also, I'm just watching all the stuff made now, you know, that is being made for the market. And it's all, there's no, there's no kissing, there's no, <laughs> there's no being to each other, there's all this stuff. We're going to do a very down and dirty kind of ancient epic in the way that, that was done by Kurosawa and by Sergio Leone. So I've, I've really honed back onto that style. So that's what I'm going to do. And we're shooting it all in Morocco. All the sets are there, everything. We've got huge amount ready. I've got, um, I've got a character called Mardin, who's the mentor uh, seer. Mm -hmm. And he's got an amazing uh, wand that can fire bolts out. Um, and that's design now. I, I have a fantastic artist in Slovakia. She's doing the designs for me, which we're working on. And um, so, yeah, in a way, like old wine, it's got hopefully better and better for the time <laughs> it's taken. So in that way, COVID has been an advantage. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll keep you guys who are listening up to date with um with what's happening with Roger's yes, documentary please. for sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And in the meantime, guys, you can follow the show at uh, we're at Force Material on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the all the all the the obvious places. Um. If you want to drop us a line that cannot be contained by the limits of social media, you can hit us up at Force Material at Gmail dot com um still two episodes left in the mandalorian season baz so you know lots yeah. still lots to look forward to for us to come back and talk about over the um the next couple of weeks i'm rowan williams i'm baz McAllister, and i'm roger christian and you've just taken your first step into a larger world <laughs>